You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm shaking my booty. Simon. And what are you eating? A homemade canapé. Excellent. Any particular reason why you've decided to eat a homemade canapé during the middle of our podcast? Uh, Because I ran out of time to have any food before I got here. It's New Year's Day. It is New Year's Day. We are recording this podcast. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy Who Year, everybody. Oh, are you going to try and get that trending? No, it didn't work, did it? No. (laughs) Didn't it work? (laughs) (laughs) I tried to get it trending on Twitter, but I tweet so little, nobody takes any notice of anything I say anyway, so... Well, Simon did. Yeah, it got... About four people tweeted it back, so I'll name them all. No, I won't really. (laughs) But thanks, Lewis. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Simon. And thanks, Ugomers. Who? Ugomers. Who's that? Um, uh, One of the other Starburst writers. Ah. He was the first one. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know. Oh, and Chris. Chris did too, so that's five people. Uh, I feel this podcast's already that's gone almost, slightly right. That's, that's almost a trend. <laughs> Were we drinking last night? I was drinking, yeah. Were you? Heavily? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, but it wasn't affecting me like that. I felt blinking awful this morning, but yeah. Uh, okay. Do you feel I was blinking mixing... awful now? I'm very tired. Oh, but you, in other, but compass mentis. Compass mentis, yeah. And not compass mental. What about you, Mark? I was very boring, I had a night in with the missus and the cat, and had the mulled wine, that was about as amazing oh, as it got, really. I had two J2Os and two glasses of Coke. Steady on. Designated driver. Mm. I had red wine, white wine, mulled wine, um, pear cider. Um, oh God, there's nothing more boring than listening to a drunk person's stories about when they were <laughs> drunk, particularly when they don't actually have a story, just a list. <laughs> Just try and remember. Uh, shall we move on? Go on? I think it's probably a good idea. This is our first episode with a new theme tune from Simon. New mm. arrangement. Mm. I've waited till you just put something in your mouth and I was going to ask you about it. <laughs> but tell us a bit about your new arrangement of the theme, Simon. What was your inspiration? My inspiration was I decided to go at it from a different angle, mm-hmm. which always helps. Okay, that sounds but like I started, a vaguely I, sexual reference. Started with a breakbeat, and it all of a sudden became a, like a big beat thing. So, mm. and the end result I've described as Doctor Who meets Fight Club. So you've probably already heard it if you listen this far to the podcast. Let us know what you think. Uh, well, we're kind of dithering around. <laughs> this is our fortieth episode. What is the subject of this episode going to be, Mark? Being as it's forty. 
Oh, no, you weren't supposed to say seeing as it's 40. I wasn't going to come to Simon for that little nugget of information. Okay, then. If it's our 40th episode, and we're going to be talking about something from the world of Doctor Who, let's give our listeners just five seconds to try and imagine what the subject of tonight's episode might be. Eric Sayward. <laughs> <laughs> we're going Why to be talking they seen about... the title on um, iTunes when they downloaded it? <laughs> what did they win? Might, might be a bit of a giveaway. Yeah. Wouldn't they have seen the title when they just before they downloaded it to see what the subject was? It's not the memory cheats. We don't keep um, secret, do we? Come on. I'm not really stupid, am I? Am I really that <laughs> stupid? <laughs> I am. I'm pretty stupid, aren't I? Um, oh, thanks for pointing that out, Simon. I don't know. I don't know what happens. When people subscribe, does it still tell them? Sorry. Yeah, I think, mm. I think so. Indeed. Irritatingly eating, sorry. Okay, then, we're going to be talking about the TARDIS. Oh, are we? Yes, we're going oh, to be talking okay. about Now, this was your idea, Simon. Mm. And... <laughs> <laughs> Just put the bloody food down. Sorry. <laughs> you can eat once we're all talking. Okay. No, this is annoying, actually, because you're trying to eat and I keep coming to you for comments. This is it. Well, I came up... There's not really any way of avoiding it, though, because until we get into this episode... This is definitely a bit about you. Because it was your idea to do an episode about the TARDIS, right? Well, it was. You said it's going to be episode 40 when you're doing the new theme tune. And it's the first one of a new year. And I said, oh, and it, I just, typical Doctor Who fan, you look for connections that aren't actually there. But type, the number 40 just said, oh, type 40. It's got to be TARDIS, surely. Right. And further than that, um, you know, because most of the subjects that I come up with tend to be about writerly things, authorly mm. things, as mm. Mark. So this is a bit different, especially for me, because I, I, this is not a subject I would in a million years have chosen to talk about. Taking you out of your comfort zone. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said a very similar thing, Mark, didn't you? You didn't think we could fill 60 minutes talking about the TARDIS. Well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> So far, we've filled <laughs> I mean, we about could... five minutes and we've barely mentioned it. <laughs> we could attack it from the viewpoint that probably other podcasts do, which is to just talk about it like it's a feature of Doctor Who and what's so great about it and all the different things you can do. But I thought as a writer you could... Well, I was going to come back to that. I say, come at it as a device. Yeah. I, yeah. We've already done that a bit, mm. actually, in a previous podcast. I can't remember which one. We'll come back to that. But what about the TARDIS? What sort of specifically about the TARDIS made you think, okay, we'll talk about that for 60 minutes? Is is there a sort of particular angle that you were thinking of? I think it's just an absolute, um, oh, what's the word? I don't think there's anything like it in any other kind of literature or... I feel like it's the device that enables Doctor Who to yeah. be whatever it wants to be. Well, that's where it, I would have come from. It's obviously. the linchpin. Yeah. and You weren't thinking of just, um, you know, because when you think of the TARDIS, what's, if somebody says the word TARDIS to you, what's your first thought? Police box. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And more than that, once you've got thought police box, the next thing you think is not necessarily bigger on the inside, but you think about the control room, right? Mm-hmm. So, actually, when you think about the TARDIS, you've automatically already got two things that don't go together. They yeah. kind of, And then when you go to your third thought, travels in time and space, mm. and you've got another thing, a third thing that really doesn't fit, 
And so your first thoughts about the TARDIS are like three different thoughts that just don't fit together, not remotely, not really. No, no. So the TARDIS is like this weird conundrum at the heart of the programme. And even if you don't think about it in terms of what it enables the programme to do, what it allows to happen, even then it's still this big, weird, stupid mystery, stupid conundrum, stupid puzzle Mm. at the heart of the programme that the whole programme kind of revolves around but at the same time, ignores. Mm. Mm. Because, go on, sorry, Mark. I think a lot of it's down to who's writing the story that week. <clears throat> so for some writers, it's just a case of depositing the, the cats yeah. at the start of the story. Other writers, I'm particularly, I'm thinking of the doctor's man with wife. The middle name. Oh, I thought you were going to go to the man whose middle name is Hamilton. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. No, I mean, Neil Gaiman uh, wrote the doctor's wife for series... Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, my memory was cheating there. Um, and obviously, yeah, it takes on a a whole new um, perspective. Perspective, yeah. We'll come to the doctor's wife well, later. I mean, it's a subject that's rife for um, re- retconning, isn't it? Yeah, big and style. The doctor's wife is a wreck. I we'll come to the doctor's wife later, and mm. we'll talk about the doctor's wife. Not into because you know when we do a review of a story, we're talking about whether we like it and what we think works. But we'll come to Doctor's Wife later from the angle of what does it say about Doctor Who. Let's go back to, I suppose we should go back right to the very start, right? Yeah. And this is something we've talked about, I'm sure, but, and this is something I always bring up. Do you know what? On the forums and elsewhere, when people are moaning, oh, Doctor Who's gone too fairy tale, it's not enough science fiction. And my answer to that is the very first episode of Doctor Who was about a magic box that does magic things. Mm. And however you want to say, oh, see that big box in the distance and this small box that's closer to you looks bigger than the big box, right? (laughs) It doesn't actually make any sense. That's fairy tale logic for a fairy tale idea. There is no logic behind the TARDIS. That makes perfect sense to me. That's what I'm saying. If you're not looking for a rational explanation... But then I have the brain of a cavewoman, so... Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. If you're not looking for a rational explanation so much as an explanation that makes sense outside the realms of science... Yeah. ...but inside the realms of fiction... Mm. And, you know, so you're talking fairy tale rather than Isaac Asimov. So the TARDIS does make... That that explanation does make a certain kind of sense. But, but, but... Go on, sorry, you... No, it's just, it's, just a, it's um, an interesting thing I've always thought about, is this idea that the inside of the TARDIS is on a different dimensional plane to the outside, and that's, that's how it's supposed to work, isn't this it? This is pseudoscience, really, isn't it? I know it is, but I'm just thinking, are all the different TARDISes insides in, a, in the same dimension? Oh, presumably. I'm thinking too much it's about like, it. Yeah, no, I don't think you are necessarily, because I think this is the trap that some people fall into... And I'm probably going to sound horrible here, but, well, I mean, there are, with science, you can pretty much prove absolutely anything, you know, just by shuffling figures around, as long as you're talking theoretically. Actually, physically proving those things is a completely different matter. You know, they come up with theories about wormholes and how wormholes might prove that certain things are possible Hmm. but until you can actually create a wormhole and actually do the physics on it as opposed to the theory on it Mm. you know it's still so much mumbo jumbo 
And in a way, all this talk, if you're one of these hard science people who mm. likes to make everything in Doctor Who have some kind of a rational sense, <laughs> you'll say, oh, the inside's on a different physical plane, a different dimension to the outside. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but, you know, on what planet is that anything other than theoretical mumbo jumbo <laughs> do you know what i'm saying so mm. uh, you know i once had <clears throat> and this is going off at a tangent a bit but you're both looking tired and mark doesn't look <laughs> like he's got anything to say so i'll go off on this change i once had <clears throat> this long discussion with a friend of mine who was really into rationalizing things right not a doctor who fan by any stretch of the imagination, couldn't stand the programme, but he was well into rationalising things. And we were talking about the possibility, the plausibility of time travel. Mm. And his argument was that if you could travel faster than the speed of light, Mm. then you'd get to your destination before you left your point of departure. And I said, no, you wouldn't actually. You'd get to your destination before the light waves Mm. had shown you leaving your point of departure but you're you know even if it took 0.0001 of a second it would still take you that amount of time so it would still be afterwards so you wouldn't have actually traveled in time and for about half an hour he was trying to persuade me of the fact that because you'd arrived there before the light waves had you'd traveled in time and he would not accept that that (laughs) 0.001 of a second meant that you hadn't. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? He was trying to prove to me something through theoretical science Mm. that actually you don't even need to know anything about science to understand. You don't arrive at point B until after you've left point A. You have not travelled in time. A five-year-old can understand that. So that basically is just an example of how I feel about People who try and rationalise the TARDIS being bigger on the inside mm, through mm. talk about dimensions and planes and stuff. It's bigger on the inside because the people who wrote the first episode of the programme came up with a magical concept and a little bit of scientific mummery flummery to explain it away. I just like that scene with Leah. That's all it is. <clears throat> I don't... That's a great scene. Yeah, really good. Mark, join us. Tell us about the mummery flummery. The mummery flummery. I'm going to uh, use that catchphrase from now on. Mummery flummery. Yeah. I couldn't think of the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's just such an iconic. Uh, yeah, I was going to use that word, iconic. I know you told me off for using that. It is an iconic. Um, I didn't tell you off for using that. Oh, the word, yeah. <clears throat> I didn't <clears throat> tell you off. I took the mickey out of you a little well, bit. Um, but yeah, it's it's even when the show was off the air. Um, it was still quite a recognisable image. If you think of that and maybe like the outline of the Daleks, that's two, yeah. two sort of iconic images that live on. So they obviously had a, a sort of quite a, a big cultural impact. There aren't many programmes, films, books, anything that leave such a huge impact on a population mm, at large, mm. culturally speaking. If you think about time. any other... Any other science fiction program? Even the Star Trek, the Enterprise. They haven't got is, anything which is that unique. No, not like the police bugs. No. I mean, you can you can mess around with the Enterprise and it'd still be the Enterprise, right? Yeah. 
but you couldn't mess around with the police box. Well, it's like a lo- it's like a loaf of bread. Every every loaf of bread is made out of flour and water, essentially. But this is a loaf of bread that's made out of jelly <laughs> or something. Do you know what I mean? It's, made it's out of com- magic. <laughs> it's made out of magic. Yeah, it's made out of things, as you say, that just shouldn't work, but they do. They've got that Narnia. It is. It's exactly. And there you it. go. That it's brings us Narnia back to the magic, quality. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that's you know absolutely and precisely the point. And probably hence why you get a certain amount of snob- snobbery from certain other sci-fi. Yeah, maybe so. But mm. I don't think it is. You know, um, this is a subject for another time, really. Yeah. But I don't think it really is sci-fi. No. I think it encompasses sci-fi and science fiction and mm. SF because you've got to distinguish between those three things. Yeah. If you're going to get that seriously into it, but I don't think it's any of those three things. It encompasses those three things, as and when the time is right. Well, for much it to like do Star so. Wars did until they tried to stop explaining stupid things with the force midi chlorians and all that rubbish oh yeah because that's that's all magic that's fantasy it's all about it's not necessarily about science fiction it's about the story yeah exactly. and it's about the the hero's tale and much the same with and something Doctor like Who. it's all about emotions i did you know for me the midi chlorians you could have put that into one of the spin-off novels or one of the cartoon strips yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Maybe even into one of the animated series. Yeah. So that the explanation's there yeah. within the wider canon if you want to find it. But don't put it in the main Do you know what? I read it in the novel. The magic. Yeah. I read it in the novel of Phantom Menace before the film actually came out because that's something I just started doing from The Empire Strikes Back onwards. I just read the, the books before the films. And were you thinking, I hope this isn't actually in the film? Yeah. I I'd, Honestly, I thought it was something the author had come up with while he was padding out the story um, i didn't actually believe it was going to appear and as you say it's almost like one of these almost like they've grabbed something out of a video game subplot or something like that because the thing about the and this is you know being a bit tangential but who cares it's new year's day the thing about midichlorians is as an explanation i thought it was perfectly valid yeah, yeah. and i thought it worked within the fiction mm. but i didn't necessarily want to hear it no. <laughs> and it's like the complete opposite of Tom Baker standing in the TARDIS with two boxes, one bigger than the other, and holding one up next to Leela's head. Mm-hmm. You know, that explanation that he gives there is the perfect explanation. Yeah, much like because, Obi-Wan saying it's the stuff that binds us all together. And, yeah, and because said, it yeah, doesn't don't... actually explain <laughs> no. anything any further than you've already got yeah. when you don't understand it in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. But it gives you just about enough of an explanation yep. that you can accept it and move that on. That you can have a faith in the programme. Strangely. In which um, time travelling... I wrote a novel in which there's a time travel twist, right? And to get... To do an explanation... I'm trying to think exactly how I phrased it now. <laughs> but it was... But my explanation for time travel was inspired in a way, I guess, by Tom Baker's explanation of Bigger on the Inside. And I got one of the characters to say... You know, the, 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 the three characters have just gone back in time, but they're not sure. They're not quite sure what's happened. And one of them's suggesting that they may have gone back in time. And one of the other ones says, don't be stupid. And he says, it, why is that stupid? And the other one says, you can't travel in time. And they have this conversation. And one of them says, you know, it's like a trick with smoke and mirrors. And the other guy says, well, no, it's not. And the other person says, well, explain to me how we've done it then. And he comes up with the explanation, and I can't remember how he phrases it. But the explanation was basically that if you put two mirrors together 
and bounced the light between them. And I was going back and drawing from this conversation I'd had with mm. his friend mm. and basically being a bit, having a bit of fun with it. But the explanation he comes up with is about bouncing light off between two mirrors and getting caught in the middle yep. at a point where time has kind of gone into flux. Yep. And then you come back to the other character and she says to him, so it is just a trick you do with mirrors. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was my explanation for it. I didn't yeah. give any more explanation than that. But I thought that's all the explanation you need. Mm. You're, never, you're never going to explain it properly. You're never going to explain it so that everybody in the audience can fully grasp it and can see it, the plausibility of it. Yeah. So come up with something that's implausible but sounds plausible. Well, funny enough, Michael, like this, coming back to Douglas Adams, yeah. the, at the heart of the uh, infinite improbability drive. Yeah. A good cup of tea. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely right. Come up with something. <laughs> come up with something that's thoroughly, thoroughly implausible. Yeah. Like, oh, you just hold the bigger box further away. Yeah. yeah. But just say it with enough conviction well, that it, you move on straight afterwards and that the people in the audience are thinking, hang on, that's stupid. Mm. Don't have time to think, hang on, that's stupid. <laughs> they just see the slightly plausible side of it. Yeah. And then you've moved on before yeah. they can see the implausible just go, side. Just like going through the wardrobe. You know, you've got that. Exactly. That That's love. all the TARDIS ever was, the wardrobe from yeah. the Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe. Yeah. In fact, when they first came up with the concept of the TARDIS, right, uh, the very first suggestion was that it would change shape at each new destination. Mm. And they realised, and this was obviously the birth of the idea that it was supposed to do that and it stopped working, right? Mm. But the idea was it would change shape and they'd have a different TARDIS in each story. And somebody said, well, hang on, this is not a show with a big budget. We can't really afford to. Character options would have loved it. Oh, they would have. (laughs) Uh, And they've done, and as part of the um, series of um, collector's toys, they've already done three different Masters TARDISes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but the but the thing is, they said we can't possibly afford to be coming up with something as expensive as the police box prop mm. every four weeks. Mm. And somebody else said, "Well, just keep the police block box prop then." And you know what? Yeah, it works perfectly. It's an yeah. accident mm. that mm. has defined the series. Well, it shows wonderful. how far it's come because at the time, police boxes were commonplace, and you might have perhaps watched the first episode and thought, "Oh, it's a police box," whereas now. 50 years later, you show anyone in the street a photograph of it and the first thing they'll say is TARDIS. They won't say police, yeah. they'll no, say yeah. TARDIS. Yeah. Well, the BBC had that big thing with the uh, Met or whoever, the police, didn't they? Uh, what was it, 10 or 15 years ago? I think it was during the 90s mm. where the BBC wanted to copyright the the design. Mm. Or, you know, I'm sure I'm getting it a little bit wrong, but basically the BBC wanted to copyright the design and the police said, you can't copyright that design because it's our design. Yeah. And the BBC said, well, you don't use it anymore. And, you know, everybody mm. who, exactly as Mark says, thinks of a police box as being the TARDIS. And it went to court, mm. uh, insofar as I can really? remember. I didn't realise it It went to court, I believe, and the BBC won. Well, mm. I never. And, you know, the police had speci- to relinquish... It's a specific design, though, isn't it? It's a specific design of... Um... Yeah, but it wasn't that. It was just that it was a police box. Right. And everybody knows that a police box is a TARDIS because police boxes just aren't in use and were phased out in the 1960s. Well, they were already being phased out when the programme started. There's one parked much. outside Earl's Court tube station. 
Is there? Yeah. Is it an actual working police box? Well, it's sat there. It's I don't know if it's being used, but... Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realise there were any still out there. Mm, in maybe the it's just been left to die. Maybe. Quietly on the street corner with yeah. everybody walking around. Well, right being the nerd I was, I had to go and take a photo of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect there's probably maybe two or three around the country mm. and they've just been left as mm. historical relics more yeah. than anything. I, I don't suppose... I mean, I wouldn't say one way or the other, but I don't suppose you can open the telephone on it anymore and use it. Probably no. not. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if you could. Maybe they do keep it in working order just because that's part of the fun of having it there, but mm. it's certainly not really using it there for a purpose anymore, <laughs> is it? Not in these days of mobile phones. Change your subject slightly. Has it ever been stated that the phone box in Bill and Ted's is obviously the TARDIS? I've never, I've never heard it I've never heard it um, admitted to. No. But it must be, mustn't well, it? Of course, yeah. It's been spoofed so many times, hasn't it? Mm. Mm. I've never seen either of, Bill and Ted fil- but, yeah. either of the Bill and Ted films, no. So yeah, A bit oh, of fun. There's, there's time travel in both? Yes. And there's a police box in both? A telephone, a telephone te- box. Te- yeah, a phone sorry, kiosk, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's got to be then, hasn't it? Thought. That's too random an idea for it not to have been inspired by Doctor Who. Yeah. Far yeah. too random. I'm sure somebody listening could probably uh, message in, you know, blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk if you want to. Yeah. And let us know if they do know definitively one way or the other. I think you definitely enjoy the first one because of the way they treat the historical characters. It's actually quite similar to how the new series attacks yeah, it's them. it's quite Moffat-esque. It is, isn't What it? about the second one then? The second one goes into um, death, doesn't it? And go into heaven and everything like that. It goes, oh, of it goes it's off got the, the tracks. Grim Reaper from the yeah. Seventh Seal, hasn't yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'd enjoy those. But it's, just, it's one of those things that passed me by at the time and I've just never caught mm. up with them since. You know them both, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was instantly thinking of Curse of Fenric as soon as you brought that with the old uh, game of chess. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. I don't oh. remember him going on to Twister and things like that. It shows that weird, cultural that references, <laughs> doesn't it? A game of chess with death, and Simon's first thought is Bill and Ted, and Mark's first thought is <laughs> Curse of Fenric, and my first and thought is The it, Seventh yeah. Seal. Yeah. Wasn't the second one directed by, is it Peter, I can't remember his name, Peter... Grimwade? We, no, the chap who used Jackson? to be, be in Bread. Oh, um, Howitt? Yeah, Peter Howitt, I think. Yeah. I think it was. Oh, could be. So Sounds Right to us and confirm... Mm. I'm not sure. Interesting, though. Yeah. Anyway, back to back to the TARDIS. Yes. That sounds like a catchphrase <laughs> or something, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, it's back do you know to what the I do find interesting about it is that, in theory, I don't. Uh, apart from the edge of destruction, or whatever it's called, what's the official title for that story? Oh, take your pick. Yeah. Edge of destruction, brink of disaster. Has there ever been another story completely based in the TARDIS? Because in theory... Well, that's an interesting subject that we should perhaps leave till next week to address. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. Have I touched on this? Have I touched on the future? Spoilers. <gasps> because this was supposed to be our Series 7B episode, looking forward to the eight episodes that are going to round out Series 7, right? Right. And so we'll do this next week. But none of these things that we're going to talk about are spoilers because they're all out in the public domain. Yeah. Oh, really? right. So it's not going to spoil anything for you, but we'll talk about it next week. There is an episode called Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. Really? Yes. 
I don't know if I like that. <laughs> I know. Do I like it? Do I? <laughs> just that title. I'll give you a week to think about it, yeah. and then later on tonight when we record that podcast, we'll talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Do me own bit of time travel, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, quite. But back just, to the subject. Was... No, I don't think there has a bottle episode, as they're called, right? Mm. And, you know, famously, I've said on this show, famously, I don't suppose anybody takes any notice, famously <laughs> in my head, I've said on this show <laughs> that The Edge of Destruction is my least favourite Doctor Who story. Really? Yeah, I said that when we did the... Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but, well, when I say least favourite, I, st- I can still put it on and enjoy it. Mm. But what I mean is it ticks all my, oh, not too sure about that boxes. Mm. Mm. But... <clears throat> I think perhaps part of the reason why nobody's ever tried to do it again since then is because they did it then and got it so wrong. Whether you like that story or not, they got it wrong. That in order to make the story work inside the TARDIS, they had all the characters doing things that were out of character and they resolved the story by having it being a problem with the TARDIS. <clears throat> that was solved by the TARDIS showing them a picture of a melting clock. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they, but, oh, there are things so bright. Um, there are, you know, reasons you can give to have a story that's set entirely inside the TARDIS, right? Mm. It could be invaded in some way, maybe. Yeah. Or it does go wrong. Or something happens that's neither an invasion nor the TARDIS going wrong, but an external influence could possibly influence the machine in some way that it needs to be manually overridden rather than, you know, being able to do it by an automated system. There are stories that you can tell inside the TARDIS, Mm. but the fact is they already did one and I don't think it was particularly successful. And whether or not you like it, I think the thinking for a long time probably was it's been done. Yeah. You know, doing a story that's set entirely inside the TARDIS is such a huge conceit Mm. That it's not something that I think you'd come back to unless you thought you had a good enough, a strong enough reason to do that. Mm-hmm. So I just I just think you've got to be the kind of showrunner, and whether you like it or not, there's been showrunners on Doctor Who since about Robert Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe. No, Barry Letts. Barry Letts was a showrunner. There's mm. been showrunners on Doctor Who since 1970. So unless you're a showrunner who likes to push at the envelope, who likes to take these things that have been done before and give them your spin, put your stamp on them, and you know what? We've got Stephen Moffat now, and who doesn't like to do that more than he does? Mm-hmm. Not only that, you've got the budget today to be able to realise it better. And uh, hopefully with his imagination, I, I think it can uh, could be quite an exciting episode. Could be. I... Or now we've done what another... we said we weren't going to do, haven't we? We've talked about it. <laughs> or but... it could be another well, invasion of time. Has, have yeah. either of you ever read the Target novel of Edge of, Edge of Destruction? No, no, I did read it when it came out. You but did? That is so long ago. Oh, right. I'm going to have to try it, see whether they pad I... it out and make it. It does. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, well, not having seen it at the time I read it, but I'm sure that I've read around the subject and that there is stuff in there probably a considerable amount of stuff in there that's not on the telly because mm, mm. I don't see how you could get those 50 minutes on the telly into 128 <laughs> pages else. It's not like you can put in pages and pages of character motivation when you've not got any extraneous characters. Mm. You know, that's the easiest way to flesh out a story, 
give your incidental characters motivations and backstories. You can't really do that if there aren't any. It, I do find it incredible how so many ideas were thrown in there into the melting pot so early on in the series. Like the, this idea that the TARDIS can influences can influence people's behaviour. It's not yeah. just a one-way thing. It's not just a person controlling the TARDIS. The TARDIS can tr- control the people inside as well. Well, this um, also kind of leads into another sort of topic along the lines of the TARDIS that I wanted to bring up that does draw on the Doctor's wife. Mm. This idea of the TARDIS being alive. Right, um, yeah. Because, you know, that, that is retcon. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. The yeah. TARDIS has not always been alive. You can point... It's like... um. They talk about symbiosis a lot, don't they, in the yeah, classic series? Yeah, there's all sorts of things they talk about. Oh, yeah, but they Space talk Museum about them, as well. Mm. They talk about them with total, um, not ambivalence, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ambiguity. Mm. <laughs> ambivalence. <laughs> they talk about it completely ambiguous. There's a lot of stuff in the classic series that's treated very ambiguously. <clears throat> and deliberately so. Because the people who are writing it, particularly if you go back really early, are very afraid of laying things down in black and white, no pun intended. Uh, (laughs) They're afraid of laying things down in too much black and white because they don't want to alienate people too early in the run. Mm. Um, Famously, between the pilot episode and the broadcast version of An Unearthly Child, they changed the line with the Doctor saying they come from the 49th century just to, we come from another time, another place. Mm. And people have always, you know, pointed at that line and says, there's the proof right there in the first episode, that he's an alien, rather than maybe just somebody from the future Mm. or from an alternative time. Or, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that episode there, that uh, line, even given standing, the Doctor could just be like Peter Cushing in the movie, a mad professor type Mm. who's come up with this crazy invention. Mm. And when somebody says something like another time, another place, that's a bit like saying, you know, I'm I'm spending an afternoon in the city. Mm. I'm from the country, which is another time, another place, because, you know, the rules are different out there than they are in here. Mm. His line in that first episode, another time, another place, makes it sound like he comes from the future in an alien planet. Mm. If... That's the interpretation you want to put on it. But if that's not the interpretation you want to put on it, it could just be that he comes from the countryside mm. and he's a mad professor who's invented a time machine. That's right. And it's only... And it, God almighty. Come on, mouth so work. You're not eating anymore, so you've got that <laughs> yeah. on your... Uh, um, so it's not until the time meddler. It's It's these decisions which happen as they go along, making up as they yeah, go yeah. along. So and it's they, like that episode and, of Knight Rider where they suddenly, oh, wouldn't it be great if he met another car that talked or something like that? I don't know whether they ever made that episode, but it's that same thinking, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if we found someone else with a with a with TARDIS? TARDIS? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even then, they still shy away from giving you any detail about it. Yeah. You know, they say he's another person from the Doctor's race, right? But that still isn't necessarily black and white proof that they're from outer space. They no. could, again, just be from the future or, you know... That there's a deliberate ambiguity throughout the entire run of the classic series, mm. even right up to Sylvester McCoy and all the stuff they were doing in Sylvester McCoy where they were trying to recreate the mythos. I think the only time when it's really lacking in ambiguity is 
I get bored of saying it, but when Eric Saywood was in charge, he's a very black and white guy. The TARDIS really took a back... What's the word? Took a... Back seat. Back seat, didn't it, during the McCoy era? Really did. There wasn't um, much at all expensive do. having the prop yeah. put up. Yeah, I mean, was, I don't mean just physically, but within the stories themselves as well. It didn't really do much, did it? Well, it didn't do anything throughout the entire history of the classic series, except for maybe three or four stories. Mm. You know, most, well, say three or four, I'm being a bit disingenuous, maybe a dozen stories in which the TARDIS is important to mm. the story. Mm. But no, let's just go back to what I was saying about it being ambiguous, because mm. uh, we were talking about whether it was alive. Mm. And then we come to maybe which stories it was important in. But let's go back to the subject of whether it's alive or not. And I think there's references right from the start. I think probably, I can't swear because I've not sat down and watched the entire classic series before coming out tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't point to any and say, but I think there's references pretty much right back to the start that you can draw upon that would prove if you read them that way, that the TARDIS has always been considered a living being. Mm. But I don't think until the Doctor's wife, it was ever definitively stated outright Mm. one way or the other. I think it's always just been this thing. And here's the thing. When they don't state things outright, you have to take in the evidence of what you can see, right? Mm. So if... Oh, trying to think of a way of analogizing this without... Uh, but Well, essentially what I'm saying is, if you have not been told that the TARDIS is a machine or that it's a living creature, but you only had the physical evidence of what you saw on screen to draw upon to come to your own conclusions, the classic series TARDIS interior, is there anything there that would make you think it was anything other than a machine? Anything at all? Not really? No. Not no. a thing. There's not a single thing, is there? No. Right. Okay. Second, so second story, they're looking for bits for it to fix it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 And then, okay, your second... Fluid link. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> but then your second um, exhibit, insofar as terms of evidence is concerned, would be not what you can physically see, but what you can watch it doing. Is there anything in the classic series... That says the TARDIS is anything other than a machine in what it does, in terms of what it does. Well, you already mentioned about it trying to communicate with the crew of the TARDIS in... Um, Space Museum. Uh, no, well, yeah, and in... Um, edge, of edge of Destruction as well, yeah. But is that not something that it would be programmed to do? Is that mm. actual evidence of a living mind at work? Or just a computer doing what a computer is programmed to do? You'd kind of... Well, maybe it's my limited thinking, but you kind of expect more like a computer printout rather than melting clock faces, things like that. It's a bit more kind of uh, abstract. Yeah, this is David Whittaker's script, of course. Mm. And yeah, that's a fair comment. But I would then go on to say that was a very experimental early story. Mm. And it's by David Whittaker, who famously did the Smoke and Mirrors time-travelling Daleks in The Evil of the Daleks. And all sorts of other things. And David Whittaker's grasp of science is really something Tenuous. special. <laughs> <laughs> so he's done something different in that story. But the 25 years that followed it, right, the TARDIS doesn't do anything, does it? That would lead you to 
believe that I think a lot be. of people's inferences is things like you know John Pertwee and Tom Baker always referring to it as old girl and you know, patting the console. Yeah, and no different like to Bessie. But that's what really. people do with cars. Yeah, and yeah people do with ships and mm. everything else. And you also know, the fact that John Pertwee was spent all his time trying to get the thing to work again and mm. all that sort of yeah. thing. There's no, yeah, as you it's say. Not like, no. He's not asking it nicely to work for him. He's fixing yeah. it like a broken yeah. car. Yeah. Um, I was going to... Oh, you made me think of something else then and now it's gone again. Um, I know, coming to the subject of the Doctor's Wife, right? There's that lovely line in The Doctor's Wife, I always got you where you needed to be. Yeah. Uh, which... Some people now would take as a kind of proof that the TARDIS was always alive because it's got to be more than coincidence that the Doctor always lands where the story is, right? Yeah. But by the same token, it's a television program. We only see the adventures he has when the TARDIS lands somewhere where there's an adventure to be had. Mm. And it stands to reason that somewhere in between, <laughs> particularly as in 25 years of screen time, the Doctor's aged something like 400 years. Yeah. So. You know, there have been long, long, long Matt Smith's periods. doctor's ageing at a ridiculous rate, isn't yeah. he? Oh, but there's a reason for that, isn't there? Go on. Well, he starts off at roughly 900, right? Yeah. And now he's roughly 1100. Yeah. That's because the 200 years that passed between the younger and the older two doctors in The Impossible Astronaut. We've not seen the entire period of oh, the I see. We lost 200 years, didn't right, we? Right, right. In which he spent 200 years entirely by himself before coming back for the ponds. Right. Known as the big finish years. <laughs> yeah maybe one day <clears throat> but you Actually, know what i'm saying sorry you're saying on. about um yeah. you only see the uh, exciting adventures uh listened to an interview with um, nick briggs and he was talking about um writing dark eyes which was a recent yeah McGann, uh, set of stories and he said he wanted to have just one episode where he had the doctor and the companion just having fun and having a bit of a laugh yeah and then after sort of sitting down and reading it back through again, he started to think to himself, hang on a minute, this isn't going to really work, is it? Because people aren't really just going to want to listen to them having a nice time. Well, you just got those fleeting Im- images at the start of, uh, is it the start of New Earth? No, I'm trying to think. Yeah. yeah. One yeah, of the early, early the tenants. Grass and, yeah. And, uh, sorry, grass. You do see some little... <laughs> oh, no, no, it wouldn't. It would be um, oh, the uh, Rose Tyler's last story, wouldn't it? Doomsday. Mm. Doomsday, yeah. Where she's... And you know what? Black Orchid. Yeah. yeah. In the first episode of Black Orchid, there's no peril for the TARDIS crew until the cliffhanger. And while that might be just a small fraction of a story, if it's a six-parter and a two-parter, that's half a whole adventure mm. in which they're doing nothing but drinking, dancing and playing cricket. <laughs> it's, <clears throat> it's actually, I think, something that I wouldn't mind spending an episode watching. Mm-hmm. You know, just one, maybe once in the entire history of the programme. Yeah. But by the same token, it's not something they're ever going to do because they know that the way the programme works is not to show that as anything other than a vignette. Let's face it, Love and Monsters kind of of touched on that same... It's touched on the feeling that you'd get from that. Yeah, yeah. Without actually going in and doing that. It would have to be a warm, fuzzy episode wouldn't it but the point remains you know this line from the doctor's wife is it is a retcon obviously Mm. and it kind of explains away how something that some people needed to have an explanation for you know if you've got the kind of mind that 
um, if you've got the kind of mind that wants everything to be realistic, to mm. have a very similitude, then you need an explanation for why the TARDIS always lands them in the middle of an adventure, right? Yeah. And there's your explanation. So that makes you happy. But from an authorly point of view, thank you, Mark, <laughs> from an authorly point of view, drama works via coincidence. You always have to have coincidence in drama because, you know, it's like your soap operas. Yeah. In your soap operas, people will throw their hands in the air and say, how can there be so many divorces, so many murders, <laughs> so many love affairs in one small area? Wow, and the fact I used to live is, in Cornwall. The fact is, it's, it's not realistic. But the I, <laughs> I used to live in Cornwall. <laughs> but the point, but the point is, in order to make your drama no. work, yes. you're telling stories that would take a place across an entire city, yeah, all in one location, all to one set of people, mm. and you have to suspend your disbelief for the fact that these people are constantly getting divorced and having affairs and putting poison in each other's tea and whatnot. Yeah, you know. It's the same with Doctor Who. It's the same with any kind of a series. Spooks. You know, is it really true that... (laughs) Casualty. every... Casualty. absolutely. (laughs) Is it it really realistic? There's your dad. Oh, look, there's your mum. Oh, look, they've all happened to end up in... They've all had accidents on the same day. They've all ended up in hospital. Brilliant. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. But that's it. And that's less believable than Doctor Who, so there we go. And that's the point. Doctor Who, the TARDIS has to land him in the middle of Jeopardy. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a programme. So you don't need an explanation for why the TARDIS always puts him in jeopardy. It puts him in jeopardy so that we can have an episode to watch. Mm, mm. So by explaining that away, that kind of ticks a box for a certain kind of person who likes to have those things, those kind of boxes ticked. Mm. But, you know, in authorly terms, it's not so much a retcon as an analogy for how the writer's art works. Yeah. So the fact that Neil Gaiman has created an episode out of doing just that, because that entire episode is basically based on... I mean, it's a lovely episode. It's beautiful, and it works, and it's sweet, and it's nice, and it does. It ticks all your boxes, even the ones you didn't know you wanted ticked. Mm -hmm. But what it is, basically, is a huge analogy for how people have written Doctor Who over the last 48 years. And it's it's like a simple thing if you think to do it. But, you you know, it takes a certain kind of a mind to think to do it. It's just honing down that. What he's basically done is he's taken the Doctor Who's writer's Bible and put all the chapters of the writer's Bible (laughs) into a story together and turned them into metaphors. Yeah. That's what he's done. It's brilliant. Yeah, he's he's kind of honed down the collective consciousness of Doctor Who fans, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's brilliant and mad and you could never do it again because it's done. Yeah. You know, uh, so what he does next time is anybody's guess. But where that leaves the TARDIS, because that's the one thing he did do, he literalised the metaphor. Yes. Prior to that, the TARDIS being alive was always a kind of ambiguous joke. It was, you know, when I say joke, I don't mean in the nasty sense of it. I mean, in terms of it was something that writers could put in that would perhaps give them a little chuckle to themselves and would perhaps leave the audience guessing. But if you put in an ambiguous reference to the TARDIS, and way more than just a she or old girl mm. or partner on the console, way more than that, if you throw in an ambiguous reference that leads you to a suggestion that there might be a living creature of some kind in the heart of the TARDIS, that's just a little way of having a chuckle with the fans. Because it's like, 
it's one of these things that's developed, that's grown up with a series that fans kind of tend to think of it as, oh, TARDIS, she could be alive, could be just a machine. Nobody really knows. So if one of the writers puts something into a script, yeah. it's almost like they've had a little inside joke with the audience members who are thinking that way. But then Neil Gaiman's come, and the, I suppose the bad thing about that episode is... He's taken the metaphor and crystallised it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. There's no way back from that. No. It's a bit like... Uh, he's done TV... a Barry Letts, hasn't he? But yeah, he has. He's done a Barry Letts. He and he's also done a TV movie, Half Human, on my mother's side. Yeah, yeah. It, now, future writers either have to ignore what he did or run with what he did. Mm. But what they can't do is go back to a time before what he did because what he did has now happened and it's in the series. It's an argument to say that it could be just a super intelligent mm. machine and has gained its own sentence. That's a, if you want to get if you want to get scientific about it, but Well, yeah, you could also say that he has cuz he ah uh, trying to think of exactly how it happens. He has the body, right? And he downloads the TARDIS consciousness into a body that already exists, right? Yeah. Right, that body that already exists has a human mind and a human heart and human flesh and blood. He has downloaded... If you download an artificial intelligence into a living flesh and blood body, right? Yeah. Then you get some kind of synthesis between the two. Mm. So the Idris that we see (coughs) throughout the Doctor's Wife could simply be the product of that synthesis mm. where she's talking like a human being, like a living creature. Yeah. But what she's really doing is just saying, my programming made me take you to where you needed to be rather yeah. than where you wanted to be. Yeah. But she's, ta- but she's telling him this as a person yeah. because the consciousness is inside. Yeah, exactly. Translating yeah. because she's inside a person. Yeah, yeah. And there's been plenty of films and books and TV programs that have... Demon Seed, I suppose, is an example. Can't think of it as a good example. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Or AI, the Kubrick Spielberg, where they've, you know, tried to show a similar thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, even there's now... Star, there's a Star Trek episode, isn't there, where the Enterprise gains sentience, I think, as well. Where they change uh, all the wiring, don't they, to some kind of... Yeah, something odd happens. Right. So it turns with a scientific like a, explanation. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I think yeah. has only been addressed more recently in the the reboot series is the whole thing of the TARDIS being able to get into your mind and uh, translate for you, and the fact oh, they yes. addressed, you know, what the hell are you doing, letting this thing get into my mind? I never asked for it to happen. Yeah. Just let it do it. Which, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think of it on that level, it's quite vaguely creepy. The thing is, of course, what's a babelfish? Thinking mm. of, uh, <laughs> thinking about it on the personal level, the Doctor, he's been in that TARDIS, and the TARDIS has been doing that with all his companions mm. since the dawn of the series. Yeah. So it's something that he takes so much for granted, he doesn't even think about it. No. So when he says it to Rose, it's like, oh, you know, this is just like making you a cup of tea. And she's like, oh, hey, what if I didn't ask for the cup of tea? And the Doctor's like, oh, sorry, I just thought you might like it. Mm. And that's how he sees that situation. So that's how that scene works. But yeah, the only time it was addressed in the classic series was Mask of Mandragora, right? I haven't seen it for a long time. Oh, Sarah Jane asks. It's, she gets, um, she comes under the influence of the 
cult of... Ooh. Is it the cult of Mandragora? No, it can't be. The cult of Hieronymus... Whatever. Mm. In Italy. In Italy. She comes under the influence <laughs> of this cult. And the way the doctor realises that she's under the fluence is because she asks him this question that she's never asked before, even though they've been travelling together mm. for three years. And the doctor says... So, you know, when Sarah's back to being normal again, she says, how did you know I was, you know, under somebody else's mind control? Yeah. And then also says, well, you asked me that bloody stupid question about how you can, you know, understand what these guys are saying in Latin or Italian or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh. But, you know, that's the only time it's addressed. Yeah. And it's addressed not so much because the author of that story wanted to explain it or even probably felt the need to explain it, but needed to think of something to have Sarah say to the doctor mm. to, you know, trigger him to what was happening. Mm. So they just kind of fairly randomly, insofar as I can tell, landed on that. And I think that was the only time it was mentioned in the entire classic series. And of course, back in those days, it was simpler times. You know, you would get children's books mm. and all sorts of series and everything else. And nobody ever needed an explanation for why, you know, all these people could understand each other when they were speaking in all these different languages. It was just one of those things that you wouldn't even think about. No. I suppose that Mask of Mandragora was perhaps at a time when storytelling was getting just a little bit more sophisticated and perhaps that's why he landed on that. Because I'm trying to think of the first science fiction thing that where they did literally talk in different languages. I'm trying to think of the first one. I think possibly Star Wars was the first one I saw where they literally had subtitles underneath. But they can all still understand each other. Yeah, they can. Yeah. That's the the thing about Star (laughs) Wars is, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it it does. George Lucas, you know, whether you think of him as a genius or not, is the first person as well, as far as I know, who actually did that, who actually thought to himself, and Mask of Mandragora was just slightly before Star Wars. So what, you know, goes into what I'm saying about people are actually starting to think about this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. He's the first person who actually addresses that, but he still has, you know, he could have addressed it and had it a problem and people have been speaking all these different languages and yeah. even translations. Always, how on earth does Han Solo understand Chewbacca? Yeah. And R2-D2 and all the rest of it <laughs> and the cantina sequence and everything else. Uh, it's just crazy. He talks in bear anyway, doesn't he? I think wow. he, just, he just says, stop, the, stop, stop making me dance. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to think now. Blade Runner as well kind of has a yeah. bit of that kind of thing. Klingon's obviously in uh, <sighs> Simon's favourite. Yeah. Go on. Why? Well, I just can't stand Klingons. Oh, okay. Do they speak in a different language? Yeah. It's, of sorts. Uh, out of intergalactic. Mumbo Jumbo. Well. A bit like the uh, Jadoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a bit, yeah. Slightly less irritating, but yeah. Yeah. Less irritating than the Jadoon. Yeah. Oh, that was funny. Oh, it's man. just their lack of depth. I can't stand it. It's just like, oh. The Klingons. Yeah. I don't really know. It was all about, about honour and all that. I was just, oh, get away. It's boring. <laughs> Back to the TARDIS. Yes. That is definitely coming to catchphrase now. Yes. <laughs> so we did say at the start that we would talk about it in storytelling terms. Yeah. And we did mention the fact that it was not used as anything other than a vehicle in many of the stories. And, um, you know, we did our episode, episode four on time travel, and yeah. we talked about Day of the Daleks and 
Mordrin Undead and things like that then. But, you know, when I think of them using the TARDIS mid-story, do you know the one my brain always lands on first? Mm. Image of the Fendor. You have to elaborate. I'm vague on that one. Image of the Fendor, right? Yeah. He's got this evil since the dawn of time thing going on. And and I think it's the same in State of Decay, actually. Yeah. And halfway through the story, in order to gather information on this particular evil since the dawn of the time that he's fighting on in this story, he goes to the TARDIS databanks and does a bit of reading. Right. You know, complete madness. (laughs) In storytelling terms, utterly, utterly insane. It's either, either understand it by finding out through the story, by investigating and uncovering information, or have the bad guy tell you what's going on. Yeah. Or have the knowledge at the start yep. and have your mystery being as you discover that it's what you thought it was. But what you don't do is go back to the TARDIS, read up a bit, then pop back out of the TARDIS and sort things out. Because if you're going to have the Doctor going back to the TARDIS, you can have him taking the TARDIS back to before it all started and yep. making sure it doesn't happen. Yep. Utter, utter nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Chris Boucher wrote Robots of Death and Face of Evil, which I think are two excellent stories. Yeah. And Image of the Fendal I like, but the bit where he goes and starts reading up on stuff in the middle just drives me insane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm being a bit disingenuous again. That's not exactly the way it happens. I'm simplifying, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's a nonsense. It just doesn't happen very often in the series. I'm trying to think of other stories where they go to the TARDIS for anything other than, you know, City of Death, go back in time. Hmm. Any thoughts? TARDIS mm. turning up in mid-story? Invasion of Time? It literally uses well, it. Well, they go a, into the TARDIS and run around. A trap, but Yeah, suppose. to be honest, they could go in, they could be, you know, anywhere running around. Yeah. It, you know, it's the TARDIS, but it's fairly arbitrary. You know the ones I'm thinking of are the Chris Bidmead ones. Legopolis. Legopolis. Mm, right. Where they shrink the TARDIS with yep. the Doctor in it. Then Castrovalva. Um, Castrovalva, where they have to destroy a third of the TARDIS in order to free themselves from the event horizon or whatever it is there. And then Frontios, where he blows the TARDIS up and they have to reconfigure the TARDIS. Yeah. He was obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> he was obsessed with the TARDIS. But not in a good way. Right. He wasn't obsessed with the TARDIS's possibilities. Uh, he was obsessed with the fact that the TARDIS was there and nobody quite knew what it was. And he kept bringing it into the stories and doing things with it. And sometimes it worked. The occlusion in Tar- Logopolis where one TARDIS is parked inside the other. I love that. The block yeah. transfer computation. But, mm. you know, TARDISes had been inside other TARDISes previously in the series, had they not? The Time Monster? Oh, right. Or were they inside one another or were they just next to one another? But, mm, not sure. Mm. But nevertheless, why would one TARDIS being inside another TARDIS necessarily cause that to happen? You know, if I parked a a, a mini inside <laughs> a lorry, yeah, that, you know... Nothing weird would happen then. It would just be a mini inside a lorry. Isn't it 
<laughs> is it? I don't want to go go into this explaining thing, but doesn't that go back to what I was saying about where the inside's in a different dimension? Different dimension so, well, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm getting to. You're having the same dimension it's, within the same dimension. Well, I'm saying this is Christopher Bidmead saying, yeah. I'd like this to be what happens. Yeah. And I mean, visually, it's quite cool. When you see them walking yeah. through, oh, no, the yeah. it gets darker and darker. That's quite cool. That's what I'm saying. It It, it works in that sort of sense. Yeah. But again, it's fairy tale versus science, isn't it? Mm. It's like, oh, I want it to do this, so I'll say that this is what happens when I do get it to do this. Yeah. But you've really not got any more of an explanation than that, have you? No. And then, and then you don't get the same effect uh, in time and space, do you, with Stephen Moffat? No, because mm. there's a TARDIS inside a TARDIS there. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's what the author wants to do. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, and in Frontios, he blows it up, and then he uses some kind of weird gravity to bring it back together. Right? Yeah, mm. he just pulls it together with the. I can't remember. It's a while since I've seen Frontios, but basically, it's just gravity that pulls the TARDIS back together. Right? <laughs> it's like, mm, yeah, again, nice it's that visual. Power. Yeah, again, it's, it's magic. It's all about visuals, science. isn't it? As well, it, it just I imagine you just um, just imagine like the panels being on the walls of the caves and stuff like that, which I loved. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Felt, you know. But, Visually, yeah, yeah. Nice idea. And in Castrovalva, psychologically, the yeah. fact that you've got to throw away th- a third of the TARDIS in order to escape from the event one. Yeah. Yeah, okay, psychologically, that's quite a powerful idea. Mm. Oh, my God, we've deleted, you know, this, that, and the other. That yeah. is the story in which that happens, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then that suggests that the inside is actually inside the outside of the TARDIS. yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, this is the hurts. thing. This is the, again <laughs> about where you get these other science fiction series that, that back themselves into a corner. Well, you know, because they try and play by the rules. Play and, by the rules. You live by the rules, die by the rules, don't and you? And Christopher Bidmead is kind of saying, he's kind of saying, I understand there are no rules. So what I'll do is I'll pretend there are rules yeah. <laughs> in order to do the story beats that I want to do. Yeah. But then he will do something stupid like contradict himself. Yeah. For example, when the TARDIS lands underwater in Legopolis, except, of course, it lands on the barge. Yeah. yeah. If the inside's in a different dimension to the outside, yeah. how's the River Thames going to get in there? Open the doors. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? It's two different dimensions. Right. If it's two different dimensions... It's not going to flood into the other dimension and flush the master out. You know, it's not going to work like that. Why wouldn't it? Well, it's a different dimension. It's not like... Yeah, but what's just, why, why wouldn't the water transfer well, from one dimension saying. to another? this is what I'm saying. In Christopher Bidmead's world, yes. he's got the TARDIS behaving in whatever <laughs> way he fancies yeah. from one moment to the next. Yeah. And if you're going to do something like if you land it underwater and open the doors the water runs through and flushes the master out, Yeah. then you, what you're basically presenting people with is a physical carriage in which the inside is on the inside of the outside. Yeah. But what, if you're then going to do pan-dimensional yes. mumbo-jumbo yep. in other parts of the story, then, you know, you... This is the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 seconds, we'll be explaining why I stopped talking mid-word. <laughs> <laughs> Simon finally snapped. He couldn't take any more, so he just shut JR off. I reached capacity. 
Yeah, our machine reached capacity and chopped me off mid-sentence. I can't remember what I was saying. I've been talking to Mark about other stuff since then. Yeah, you were saying I was that- saying that Christopher Bidney kind of tends to treat the TARDIS as something that he can do with whatever he so pleases in terms of the physics and the science in, you know, in assistance to whatever he wants to happen in his story. Mm which doesn't always necessarily make for the most plausible use of the TARDIS. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the way Christopher Bidmead's Doctor Who worked. You know, leisure hive onwards from one minute to the next. You never knew what was going to happen, and it was very inconsistent. Do you think we'll ever see something else of the ilk of the mine robber? Mm, that's a tricky one. That's got yeah. nothing to do with the TARDIS. Apart from the fact well, that it blows up at the start. It was, yeah, that's what made me think of it when we were talking about Frontios. Frontios? Have you been listening to the <laughs> Americans? Frontios. Frontios. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they made that one after Adric left, didn't they? Oh, yeah. With the Daleks. <sighs> <laughs> All right, we're done with annoying. Are yeah. we done with annoying, Simon? I think are we so. annoying I a little so. bit more? I think so. We do that enough as it is. Well, Even before when we're not we were recording, recording, we were having a go at each other's accents, weren't we? And you were proving Well, you were having a go at mine. Yeah, I know. And I got bitten. Yeah. <laughs> I got my fingers burnt, didn't Yeah, I? you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I think if anybody would do it, it would be Stephen Moffat. Because mm. Stephen Moffat is the closest to going off at that kind of a tangent. But I think we live in a different day and age. I it's think, very much of its time, isn't it? Yeah, I think going off into a purely fantastical setting without even trying to anchor it in any kind of, however implausible, yeah, uh, you know, scientific explanation. Because even Stephen Moffat doesn't go so far as to do pure fairy tale without mm. at least mm. a little bit of Barry Letts-style mumbo-jumbo to explain it away. Mm. And if you were going to do something like The Mind Robber now, you know, that's where you'd be going. It'd be like a virtual reality thing, <clears> wouldn't it? It would... The closest yeah. we probably got was Amy's Choice. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I don't think that was particularly... I know a lot of people like that. I really like it. That's fair enough. But I don't think it treated that aspect of it particularly successfully. No. And it's a bit too Red Dwarf <clears throat> in some respects. But, uh... Plus also, if you're going to do a mind robber these days, it would be prohibitively expensive. Because you can't... You know, mind robber is pretty famous for the cheapness of its sets and oh, god it was brilliant though it was brilliant but it does not look great i think it does yeah well it also, looks great in a certain kind of way but when yeah. i say it doesn't no, look no, great yeah. it doesn't look it, remotely plausible yeah don't forget back then they are a much lower resolution they could get away with all sorts yeah. of stuff because of the quality <laughs> of the picture you'd be seeing yeah. at home would be not that oh brilliant. yeah you're talking about people who are watching a 405 line image on a television screen that's 10 inches across by 8 inches high. I just love all the symbolic, the symbolism stuff, you know, the, the, the real um, leap of faith stuff, like, you know, people getting squashed in a book and stuff like that, and straight out of a kid's book. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah. But the, the in this day and age, I just don't think they can, no. really. You know, they might push the envelope out in those directions. And Stephen Moffat has, you know, uh, what was the ending of The Big Bang if it wasn't click your heels and clap your hands? Mm-hmm. You know, it was a fairy tale. But in terms of actually doing a mind robber, I can't see them being able to afford it apart mm-hmm. from anything else. So the other thing they would never do as well. Uh, do you think they'll do an episode where they fix the chameleon circuit? 
Now, like, I wouldn't put that past Stephen Moffat. Yeah. Well, it has been pretty much out and out said since the series came back that the Doctor keeps it as a police box because he likes it that way. Yeah. Has it actually been said out right? I think it has, hasn't it? Yeah, that does ring a bell. Only as much sure, as no. Eccleston, did he say? I think he's... And even Tennant may have, and even Smith may have said mm. something like, you mm. know, why is it shaped like a police box? I like it like that. Yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. I couldn't yeah. pinpoint it, but but you know what I mean? I can see Stephen Moffat being the kind of person who would do an episode like Attack of the Cybermen where they change it mm. for an episode. Mm. Mm. Comedy and, value. Yeah, partly for comedy. I can also see Stephen Moffat being the kind of guy who does it for a story reason. Mm. I can see... If they came up with, and I don't think it'd necessarily be Moffat who wrote it, I think this could be, you know, this could be a Chibnall type thing, mm. where they come up with a reason within an episode why the TARDIS would have to be in the shape of, say, a Ford Cortina, mm. and then the Doctor goes off, fixes the chameleon circuit, changes it into a Ford Cortina, and then afterwards goes into the room where the chameleon circuit was with a hammer and just beats the living crap out of it so that it reverts <laughs> to being a police box. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I could see Stephen Moffat's tenure of Doctor Who addressing that in that kind of a way and then forgetting about it again afterwards. Mm, yeah. And you know what? That would be a good thing because if they went so far as to do that, a little bit like Neil Gaiman with the TARDIS in The Doctor's Wife, you'd be putting a full stop on something. Mm. Yeah. Because until you actually address it on screen, it's always, and I've used this word so many times in this podcast, but it's always quite ambiguous as to why the TARDIS really is a police box. Mm. Okay, it got stuck. Okay, he likes it. But you know what I mean? You might have a shirt that your gran knitted you at Christmas one year that you said, oh, I'm not wearing a bright orange shirt. And then put it on one day because your gran had knitted it for you and actually found you kind of liked it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It got stuck in the shape of an orange wool shirt and actually it turned out you kind of liked it, so you kept it. <laughs> but until you address it, yeah. until you put it on screen and you go back to wearing a regular blue shirt and then think, no, I don't like the blue shirt, I'll go back to the orange shirt. Until he actually does that on screen with the TARDIS, it's not fixed. No. You know, there's always the possibility that he might change his mind on it until we see him trying to change his mind and changing it back. Yep. So... What was the original design again? Wasn't it a sphere or an egg or something? Those designs uh, that I don't they know whether that actually was or whether that's just an urban myth that's grown up because of the war games and all everything else. Mm. You know, and all there was the a drawing, other... though, wasn't there, the, the was... BBC archive? It was there. Uh, I, yeah. I can't honestly I can't remember. remember. But, but thank God... You're not confusing thank, it with Mork and Mindy? No. <laughs> thank God for the blue box. Yes. That's bigger on the inside. Yes, yeah. we would, travels we would in have, time and space. I don't know what this podcast would have been called. TARDIS still, probably. Even if it changed no, no, every I mean, week. <laughs> oh, the blue box, the blue box podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could have been the silver triangle. Silver egg yep. podcast. Could have. Anyway, I think we've come full circle. Yes. Boom! Yeah, and that went far better than I thought it would. Yeah, I was actually, concerned. <laughs> so we should sign off with the promise that next episode we really will do our series seven B preview episode. Honest. 
Yeah. How many times have we done that? Next week, sex with a blue box crew. Oh, oh postponing that's no. the week after. You're being ambiguous again. That's not a pleasant thought. Anyway. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, I was JR. I was Mark. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. I'm shaking my booty. by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk